0: So having looked at the primus pars, the primus secunda and the secunda secunda, we'll now be looking at the tertia pars with Father Simon Gain, who has been lector here um, and regent of the Hall and Studium and regent of the province and is going on soon to be the Pinker's Chair in Theological Anthropology and Ethics at the Angelicum in Rome. He'll be talking to us now about the tertia pars been asked to look at something from the third part of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, and I've decided to speak in particular about Jesus Christ as exemplar in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to say something about Christ first and gradually move towards what it means for him to be an exemplar for us. So I begin by asking who and what Jesus is according to Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, Jesus is, of course, God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. As for what he is, he is, of course, both God and man, one divine person in two natures, divine and human. Aquinas was very careful to find out all he could about the teaching of the councils of the early church, concerning who and what Jesus is. Of course, all theologians in the 13th century knew what the Church taught about the Constitution of Jesus. But Aquinas went further to find texts of the early councils to know exactly what they said. And so he went on to seek further theological understanding of what Jesus means for us. So important was Christ to Aquinas' theological enterprise. However, scholars often think that Jesus Christ was not very important in the thought of Aquinas. They think that he was largely interested in proving the existence of God and God's attributes, and perhaps in human morality too, natural law and things like that, but not so much interested in Jesus. That's a massive mistake, but it's worthwhile our asking why they get that so wrong. The reason they think the way they do is the way Aquinas orders his material in the Summa Theologiae, which is his most well-known work. The first part is mainly about God, and the second part is mainly about the human being. Only in the third and final part does Aquinas explicitly focus on Christ. Of course, Jesus is not entirely absent from Aquinas' thinking in the first and second parts. It's only because of Christ that Aquinas knows that God has a Son in eternity, that God is a trinity of persons. Aquinas could never have written about God the Holy Trinity, in the first part, without his knowledge of Christ. And likewise the rich view of humanity Aquinas portrays in the second part would have been impossible without his knowledge of Christ. And yet Aquinas deliberately holds back speaking of Christ as much as possible until the third part, and only here does he treat of Christ systematically. And so people often think that Jesus is something of an afterthought for Aquinas, a kind of appendix to his main thinking, when in reality the Christ of the third part is more like the climax to the Summa Theologiae rather than an afterthought. Having looked principally at God in the Summa's first part and then at humanity in the second part, Aquinas can now contemplate how divinity and humanity come together in the third part. That is, how these two natures, divine and human, are united in the one person of Jesus. The first part of the summa, however, was not only about God the Holy Trinity, but about how all else comes forth from God by creation including human beings made in God's image. The second part of the Summa was about how creatures, and the human creature in particular, make a return journey to the God from whom they came forth. The second part told us about the character of this journey to God, this pilgrim journey to the beatific vision about what kind of journey it is, a journey of faith, hope and charity, and all the other virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a journey of the Spirit's grace, which heals our sin and lifts us above our nature to know and love God in a supernatural way as our final goal and destination, so that God the Holy Trinity already indwells our souls as we're making this journey to heaven. But even if we know what kind of journey we need to undertake, a journey of grace and virtue, we still need to know on which road we should make that journey to our destination, which road or way will best suit the journey we need to make while Aquinas spent the second part of the Summa telling us what our journey needs to be like in terms of grace and virtue. In the third part, he tells us the road God has chosen for our grace-filled journey, the road or way on which this virtuous journey is to be trod. And here in the third part, we learn that this road or way is Jesus Christ. When the two natures, divine and human, are united in the incarnation of God the Son become man, Christ becomes the way, the route, by which we make our journey back to the God from whom we originally came forth by creation. Christ being the way is the most fundamental part of Aquinas' understanding of Christ. Of course, all Catholic theologians of his time agreed that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, and all would have agreed that Christ is the way. Where Aquinas did something a bit more distinct was by singling out Christ as the way, as his basic idea for his thinking about this Jesus. He takes this idea from John's Gospel which was a highly significant influence on Aquinas' understanding of Jesus. In St. John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Aquinas took this saying very seriously, and he thinks about it in terms of Jesus being both God and man. He thinks of Jesus being the truth because he is God and he thinks of Jesus being the life because he is God. But he thinks of Jesus being the way insofar as he is human. In brief, God the Son is the truth because he is the Word of God, which again comes from John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. This Word is so perfect that it expresses God Perfectly matches the reality of God perfectly, meaning that this word is perfect truth. When a word and reality match, you get truth. And so the perfect word of God is truth. And likewise with life. In God we have a perfect life of knowing and loving, in which the Son knows the Father perfectly and loves him perfectly in the Spirit. So the Word is life, just like the first chapter of John's Gospel tells us. So just being God makes Christ the truth and the life. But when he comes to consider Christ as the way, Aquinas turns to Christ's humanity. As God, Jesus is our goal, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But all of these are equally God. There is nothing about any of them in themselves that makes them the way to God. All are equally God. Aquinas thinks that when the Son becomes human, becomes one of us, he thereby becomes a way by which we can journey towards God. So while he is the truth and the life by being God, by becoming human, Christ becomes our way to God. What I want to do now is to unpack a little bit what it means in practice for Christ to be the way. And I want to do this by showing how being the way for us to God is partly explained by his being our exemplar. Once we understand how Christ is an exemplar for us, we'll understand a little bit more about how he is our way. I'm going to approach Christ being our exemplar by saying a little bit more about the journey we need to make to get to God and so how Christ can be the way or road for this journey of ours. Like many other things, a journey has a beginning, a middle and an end. Aquinas is clear what our starting point is beginning of our return journey and that is sin. We are somehow entrapped or enslaved by sin. Christ gets us out of that slavery according to Aquinas by dying on the cross for our redemption. That's part of the story of how Christ is our way but I'm not going to talk about it now. But given that we've been freed and got on the move Aquinas needs to think about how we start to act in a way that is not sinful but right. And through right action, we make our way through this life towards God in the next life. God himself is, of course, the end point of this journey, when we come to know him and love him perfectly in the glory of heaven, our final destination. Christ's role as exemplar is of crucial importance in this movement of ours through this life of faith to the glorious vision of heaven. An easy way into considering Christ as exemplar might be to consider how Christ is an example for us. The words example and exemplar are very similar, and indeed they're very closely related in reality and in practice, as we shall see. If we're going to think about how we're going to make this journey of acting well rather than sinning, once we've been freed from sin, Christ's example of human living, his moral life, is obviously going to be of help to us. And along with the redemption wrought on the cross, the example of Christ's own life is part of Aquinas' explanation of how Jesus is our way to God. Aquinas has a lot to say about all the various mysteries of Christ's life. Other theologians have often tended to skip over the details of Jesus' life. They've typically thought a lot about what we might call the metaphysics of the incarnation, Jesus being both God and human and what that meant. But then they tend to skip to the Passion and Cross, and think about what it meant for Jesus to redeem the world. Aquinas was very different, because he wanted to explore in principle how everything Jesus did and everything Jesus suffered contributed somehow to our salvation. And this included not only what came after the Cross, like the Resurrection, but also what came before. And part of this was that Jesus, in everything he did and everything he suffered, was providing an example for our journey, our journey that goes from sin to God. Of course, Jesus taught us in his words how to leave sin behind and approach God. But Aquinas is very fond of saying that examples move us more than words. He appeals to our experience in this. We just know that we often respond better to an example than to someone just telling us what to do. Saint Dominic was well known for teaching by word and example. And I imagine that Aquinas thought of Dominic here as being like Jesus himself. Aquinas says, By his way of life, the Lord gave us an example of perfection, in every essential thing pertaining to salvation. And so he was also fond of the saying he got from the Christian Roman senator Cassiodorus. Christ's action is our instruction, which he repeated a number of times. So according to Aquinas, Christ taught us by his deeds as much as by his words. In John's Gospel... Aquinas has a clear example of this when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, because Jesus there explains that he's done this in order to give the disciples an example, so that they would wash wash each other's feet. I'll give a longer quotation from Aquinas here, which comes from his commentary on John. For when we are dealing with human conduct, example is always stronger than words. The human being chooses and does what seems good to him, and so what he chooses is a better indication of what is good than what he teaches should be chosen. This is why when someone says one thing and does another, what he does has more influence on others than what he has taught. Thus it is especially necessary that one live as much by good example as by good word. Another instance of Jesus' moral example would be the temptations in the desert. Here Jesus gave an example of how we are to resist different kinds of temptation, different kinds of temptation to sin, and so conform ourselves to the will of God. But likewise, his being baptized just before the temptations was an example to us too. Jesus may not have got Out of baptism the salvation we get out of it, but his humble acceptance of baptism is an example to the unbaptized. Again, when he fasted and prayed, he gave an example to us, to us who ought to fast and pray, and so on. Aquinas is of course aware that there are many other human examples we can benefit from, such as the example of the saints but he sees Jesus' example as exceptional. Aquinas knew that people's example can be limited by their historical circumstances, and he thought that no mere human being could function as an example for the entire human race across history, across time and space. Jesus, however, is no mere human being, but a human being who is God. The human life of Jesus is the human life of God the Son. So Aquinas thought that Jesus, being divine as well as human, was adequate for all situations. There's a little bit more however to this than Jesus being God. He needed of course to be human as well to give us a human example. He needed a human body, a human mind, human emotions, a complete human nature or he could not have given us a human example. But it's even more than that. Jesus needed not simply to have a complete human nature, he needed to have a human nature that was perfect. Without his humanity being perfected, his human reasoning might have gone wrong and his manner of life might have given the wrong example. Now we are beginning to approach what Aquinas meant by seeing Christ as our exemplar. In order to give us a proper moral example by his actions, he needed to be our exemplar in a more fundamental way than mere acting. This meant that the Son of God didn't just need to assume a human nature capable of human action. He needed to assume a human nature perfected by the grace of the Holy Spirit and by the perfect virtues and gifts that come with grace. Here we're encountering a distinction Aquinas uses between what God the Son assumes and what he co-assumes. What the defined Son assumes is human nature. A complete human nature, intellectual soul as well as body, the basic human kit, if you like. Aquinas set out this basic human kit back in the Summa's first part. And he shows in the third part how Christ assumes that fundamental human nature. What Christ co-assumes includes various perfections that don't come with the basic human kit as such, but give the added value of further perfection to the humanity. These add-ons to the basic kit are needed because as a creature of this material world, human beings don't come perfected or finished. They naturally need perfecting over time. In the second part of the Summa, Aquinas had given a picture of what all these perfections were, such as grace, the virtues theological and moral, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These perfections he co-assumes. Not that everything Christ co-assumes, however, is a perfection. In some cases, he co-assumed a defect rather than a perfection. For example, he co-assumed the perfections of the body that he, he he could have co-assumed the perfections of the body that normally come at the resurrection, such that he wouldn't be able to suffer bodily hurt. However, if he had done that, he would not have been able to suffer the passion for our sake. So, in this case, he co-assumed a defect the ability to suffer bodily hurt, rather than a perfection. But we should note that Aquinas has another reason why Christ assumed a passable body, because without it, he would not have been able to give us a moral example of patience in suffering. However, in order to give us this perfect example that we need, He needed not only the defect of a passable, vulnerable body, but he also needed the perfection of the virtue of patience. So we come now to consider the range of perfection Christ needed to co-assume in order to be fully equipped to give us a perfect example of human living. These perfections underlie Christ's perfect actions. And as such, they are something deeper in him than the actions that spring from these perfect depths. It is in this way that Christ was not just an example of action, but was also an exemplar for us of all these perfections, which we also need so that we can make our journey from sin to God and indeed finally to be in heaven. Christ has all these perfections so that they can somehow be reproduced in us. He is a kind of channel of these perfections from God to us, so that we can make our journey back to God. But in order to channel these perfections, in order to give them to us, he needs to have them perfectly himself. Aquinas is much influenced by what he reads in the New Testament about Christians being conformed to Christ. St. Paul uses this kind of language, for instance, in the letter to the Romans. By being adopted as sons and daughters of God, we are somehow conformed to the Son of God, conformed to the image of Christ. For Aquinas, what we are being conformed to here is our exemplar, and so I think I'll say just a little of what Aquinas means by exemplar. An exemplar is a kind of model for something, a blueprint if you like. If I'm going to make something, say a boat or a chair or a painting or something like that, I'm going to have a plan in mind that I'm going to model the final product on. If I'm an artist, I might have a human model as the model for my work of art. Or I might just have something in my imagination or mind which provides the model I'm trying to reproduce in wood or stone or on canvas. Now, when I have an idea in my head that I'm using as a model, that's something that Aquinas would mean by an exemplar. When we say that Christ is an exemplar, We're saying that in various ways he is our model, the model to which we are to be conformed. Our adoption, as sons and daughters of God say, is modelled on the exemplar of Christ's being the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. At this point, I just want to step back to the Summa's first part, which Aquinas wants us to keep in mind even while we're looking at the third part because Christ being exemplar isn't just something that has to do with his humanity. It's something that has to do with his divinity too. I've just intimated this by saying that Christ's eternal divine being is the model for our being adopted as children of God. So Christ's being exemplar goes right back to his divinity. In fact, it even goes right back, it goes back beyond our being adopted as children of God and goes right back to our creation, which Aquinas also covered in the first part. If you think for a moment about our creation, we can ask what God the Holy Trinity was modelling his creation on. What was God's exemplar for the created universe? Because there is nothing prior to God that could be his exemplar, we have to conclude that God himself is God's exemplar. God somehow models the universe on himself, so that the finite being of creatures somehow imitates the infinite being of God. So when God eternally begets his word, in this word, He somehow speaks or expresses all the creatures he intends to make. Like St. Augustine before him, Aquinas speaks of the Word as the Father's art, containing in advance the forms of all creatures. And when the Word proceeds from the Father, eternally begotten, this procession is the exemplar or model for the procession of creatures from God by creation. In this way, in his divinity, Christ is already the exemplar even of our very creation. But what we need for our redemption, Aquinas thinks, is not simply a divine exemplar, because that might seem too remote to us humans. What we need is an exemplar who is human as well. All this also helps Aquinas to explain why it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who becomes incarnate. Aquinas thinks that God is powerful enough to cause an incarnation of any person of the Trinity. Absolutely speaking, the Father could become human, and so could the Holy Spirit. However, God in his wisdom has chosen that it be the Son who becomes incarnate and only the Son for our recreation. Aquinas thinks we can try to explore God's wisdom in making this choice, and he thinks that because the Son begotten by the Father is the eternal exemplar of creation, and we need a human exemplar for our return journey to God, it is very fitting that the Son be the one who becomes incarnate for our salvation we can then pick out ways in which christ is our exemplar in his humanity as well in ways as well as in ways that he's exemplar through his divinity one way would be his resurrection in 1 corinthians st paul treats christ's resurrection as somehow the basis of our resurrection and aquinas capitalizes on this seeing christ's rising as the exemplar of our rising, where our resurrection bodies are somehow modelled on his. But St. Paul also says in Romans that Christ was raised for our justification. So Aquinas relates the resurrection also to the justification of our souls by grace. Seeing justification and all the virtues and gifts that come to us with grace as a kind of resurrection of our souls, which we get in this life, in advance of the resurrection of our bodies, which we get at the end of time. I want now to indicate something about the particular perfections Christ needed to co-assume in order to be our exemplar to whom we could be conformed. The most basic of these is the grace of the Holy Spirit, what Catholics call sanctifying grace. Aquinas sees all the different perfections as perfecting different aspects of the human being. Back in the first part of the Summa, he had distinguished the essence of the soul from the various powers of the soul, which he saw as rooted in the soul's essence. In the second part, he saw sanctifying grace as inhering in this essence of the soul, in order to elevate the soul to participate in the divine nature. The idea of Christians participating in the divine nature is something he took from 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. He explains this participation theologically in terms of this stable gift of grace which makes the soul holy. How though do we get this grace? In the third part, Aquinas tells us that this grace comes to us through Christ. Christ co-assumes grace so that he can give it to us. Aquinas is again working from John's Gospel. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John also says that it is from Christ's fullness that we have received grace upon grace. So Aquinas doesn't just think that Christ has grace in the essence of his soul so that he can give it to us. Jesus has a kind of preeminent plenitude of grace, grace in all its fullness, so full that we can share, participate in that fullness. Here he calls on Paul's idea of Christ as the head of the body, the church. All the members Aquinas says, receive the grace of the Holy Spirit from the head, who has it preeminently. So you can see how Christ's grace is the exemplar of our grace. Our grace is modeled on his and conforms us to him, making us adopted sons and daughters of God. Pretty much all the virtues and gifts of the Spirit that come with grace are the same. Christ has them pre-eminently, and so they are exemplars of the same virtues and gifts in us, who are the members of the body, participating in the fullness enjoyed by the head. His justice is the model and source of our justice, His patience is the bottle and source of ours, and so on. For pretty much all the virtues and gifts you could consider, Christ is the exemplar to whom we are to be conformed by having all these virtues and gifts in abundance. However, it's not as simple as that in every case. We can approach this by turning in more detail to how Christ's co-assumption of perfection brought about the perfection of the chief powers of his soul, which Aquinas identifies as the intellect and the will. When he comes to look at Christ's knowledge, Aquinas identifies various kinds of knowledge Christ co-assumes so that he can bring about our salvation. Aquinas doesn't think that every kind of knowledge comes automatically with Christ's assumption of a human mind, so he teases out the different kinds of knowledge Christ co-assumes. Among these is beatific knowledge, the kind of knowledge we hope to have in heaven, the beatific vision. Aquinas thinks Christ needed it all through his earthly life for the purpose of bringing us to share in the same knowledge. Ultimately, Christ will be the exemplar in heaven of all those who in heaven share the same beatific knowledge, that is, the vision of God himself. But this beatific vision was already at work in Christ's human mind during his earthly lifetime, providing Christ's human mind with perfect knowledge of his Father, out of which he taught the truth about God. This meant that Jesus really knew God perfectly, even in his human mind. And so he was able to teach authoritatively about God, just as we find him doing in the Gospels. What this meant was that the disciples could believe on faith what Jesus taught them, because Jesus taught them what he saw for himself. The upshot of this is that Jesus was not himself a believer. As you know, faith is one of the most important Christian virtues. Aquinas sees it as, among other things, the virtue that perfects the intellect so that we can believe God and believe in what God reveals. Aquinas notes that Hebrews defines faith as taking what is unseen as its object. We only believe what we don't see for ourselves. Jesus, however, saw God, as it says in John's Gospel, and so didn't need faith. Aquinas thinks that everything of perfection that faith has, Christ had. But because faith includes this element of imperfection, that it is in things unseen, Christ did not have it, but had something better, namely beatific knowledge but it was the perfection of beatific knowledge that enabled Christ to reveal divine mysteries to our faith. Another theological virtue that Christ did not have was hope. For Aquinas, hope was one of the virtues that perfected the will. In us who believe, there is also hope to come to the vision of God in heaven. Jesus, however, because he already had the vision of God, did not hope for it. We only hope for what we don't already have. There were, of course, things Jesus hoped for during his earthly life that he didn't already have. He hoped for the redemption of the world, and he hoped for the resurrection of his body. But he did not hope to get to know his Father better. There is nothing in the Gospels about him seeking to improve his relationship with God. So Christ did not have the theological virtue of hoping for union with God because he already had it. But apart from these crucial exceptions, Aquinas thought Christ had every virtue and gift to a preeminent degree as our head so that he could be the model and so the source of all those virtues and gifts in us, the members of his body. Where he didn't actually have the virtue, as in the case of faith and hope, it was because he had something better, namely the vision of God and union with him, which will eternally be the exemplar of our vision of God and union with him when we come to heaven. But when we look at other virtues, like the theological virtue of charity, another perfection of our wills, we must envision Christ our head having a plenitude of charity in his human will, and us participating in his charity, our love modelled on his, and our love being drawn from his love. Perhaps surprisingly, Aquinas doesn't have a section on Christ's charity in the Summa. You'd really think he'd have a section dealing with Christ's love, wouldn't you? After all, he has a section dealing with Christ's grace and Christ's knowledge, so why not something as crucial as Christ's charity? The reason is that Aquinas thinks you don't need a special section, like you need a special section for Christ not having faith and not having hope. Because you just apply the same principles from grace, to every other virtue and gift, including charity. And so Christ had pre-eminent charity. But when he comes to the commentary on John, where it says things like Christ loved them to the end, Aquinas can really get going and tell us all about Christ's pre-eminent perfect charity, how our charity is based on his and all the rest of it. This is one reason that makes me think how the Summa is not necessarily always the summit of Aquinas' theology. The Summa is full of questions that arise out of reading the Bible. But the answers are meant to lead you back to the Bible and re-read the Bible equipped with all this new theological knowledge. What we find in Aquinas' commentary on John is Aquinas armed with all this Summa-like theological thinking, now bringing it back to the biblical text and taking the reading of the Bible to a far deeper level. In conclusion, our understanding of Christ as exemplar should enable us to see how Christ can also be a moral example. I said that Aquinas thinks Christ needed to be God and man to give us the example we need, but I hope I've also shown that he thinks that Christ needed not just a basic human nature, but a perfect one to give us this example. When Christ acted for our instruction, it was out of this whole panoply of gifts and virtues. Thus, Aquinas thought that when Christ came to the cross, his example to us expressed every virtue. Just in terms of charity, there's greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But also in terms of patience, humility, and all the rest, we can see all these virtues realized in the Passion. The reason Christ can give such an example is that he had such great and perfect virtue, that he was the exemplar, to which we must be conformed in grace and virtue and gift. And so I've tried to give you an idea of how Aquinas thinks of Christ as our exemplar, and in this way fill out a little bit of what it means for Christ to be our way, our way of truth by which we can make the journey to everlasting life with him, Christ, the way, the truth and the life.